We're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the book of Daniel and to Daniel chapter 8. Uh, You'll find our reading on page 745 over into 746 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, We're going to read the whole of Daniel chapter 8 together. Uh, This is another dream, another vision that Daniel has. Uh, You'll know that the second half of the book is different from the first. Uh, We're going to say a little bit more about that uh, later on in the service We're going to read the whole of chapter 8 together. This is Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. Complicated chapter, but we're going to be thinking about it together this evening. So it's Daniel 8, page 745, over into 746 of the Pew Bibles. And as we read, we remember that this is the Lord's word to us. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westwards and northwards and southwards, No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with with the two horns, which which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven." One of them, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the, of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. 
He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold countenance, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and less sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Amen. And we thank God for this, his word. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 8. Uh, last week we took a step out of Daniel. Uh, we're returning to it this evening. Uh, the latter chapters of Daniel's, uh, Daniel are dense and difficult to understand. But they are as well, they are as well rich and they have a lot to teach us. And there's great encouragement from them too. Conscious after reading Daniel 8 that it sounds very complicated And also conscious that some of what I say may be quite difficult to understand. And I hope that you can stick with me tonight as we try and understand this chapter. You'll find it helpful to have Daniel 8 open in front of you. Uh, It's pages 745, 746 of the Pew Bibles. It was a game of two halves. Uh, You've probably heard that expression before. It's an expression that is mainly used about football matches. Although it could be used in other sports. It was a game of two halves. In other words, the first half of the game was very different to the second half. In many ways, Daniel is like a game of football. It's a game or a book of two halves. The first half, chapters 1 to 6, contains stories from Daniel's life, stories of how Daniel and his friends boldly stood for the Lord while the people of God were in exile. Chapters 1 to 6 tells us about how Daniel and his friends lived and worked and served under a series of kings Each king tried to destroy the people of God, but ultimately each king failed. From chapter 7 on, though, the book changes. And we know this because we've looked at chapter 7. We've said it a few times as well. But Daniel 7 to 12 is less familiar to Christians than chapters 1 to 6 are. That's because in chapters 7 to 12, we're no longer dealing with a history book. We're dealing with dreams and visions, even nightmares. Daniel 7 to 12 gives us an insight into the world behind the natural order. To put things very simply at our sort of root level, chapters 1 to 6 are the story of history, simple stories that really happened in time and in space. Chapters 7 to 12, though, take us behind the story of history. It's important to note that the second half of the book of Daniel doesn't follow historically or chronologically from the first half of the book. 
Daniel dates the visions that he has by telling us who was king at the time. You can actually see that in the first verse of chapter 8. What Daniel is really saying to us as he does this is, I I want you to see what God is doing in human events. So we've read chapters 1 to 6. We know the stories. Here's what's going on behind the scenes. Chapters 1 to 6 are mostly narrative, a little bit of apocalyptic in there. Chapters 7 to 12 are mostly dreams and visions. And the two are connected because having told the story of history in the first half, Daniel wants to take us backstage, as it were, to understand the ways of God in human experience. Daniel is a book of two halves, and the second half of the book is quite difficult to read. Have you ever come to the second half of the book of Daniel in your own personal devotions and thought, just going to skip this bit, going to go to the New Testament, leave this bit for a little bit later, hard to understand, don't know what it's about. There's no doubt that that's an issue. These chapters are dense and confusing. We have all sorts of animals and pictures. But before we look at Daniel 8, let me give you two really helpful tips on how to read these chapters yourself. Here's the first tip. First tip is use your eyes. Now you're thinking, good one, fairly obvious. How will we know what the second half of Daniel is about if we don't read it and use our eyes? What I mean though is that you need to imagine these chapters. Chapter 8 is not a talk, but it's a vision. Daniel calls it that several times. Look at verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. So this is not a talk, this is a vision. Throughout this chapter and the other chapters in the second half of Daniel, Daniel uses the word see. He doesn't say, I listened and I heard. Instead, he says, I looked and I saw. So verse three is a very good example. I raised my eyes and saw. When we come to read a passage of scripture like this one, when we read apocalyptic literature in scripture, we need to remember that it's not a talk about history as much as it is a tapestry of revelation. We need to open our eyes wide so that we can see the pictures. I actually think it's easier to read this part of Daniel if you're a child or if you're a young person. When you get older, you get, you get all sorts of strange notions in your head about the second half of the book, but you also listen to the words rather than imagine the pictures. Boys and girls in Sunday school would find it easier to explain what happens in Daniel 8 than we would because they're used to picture books. And this is, just, this is just a picture book from the second half on. So that's the first tip. Use your eyes, open your eyes, use your imagination. These visions are supposed to create an impression of power. As we'll see in a moment in the case of Daniel 8, it's dark power that we're supposed to see. But here's the second tip. And this is something that Daniel did. As well as using our eyes, we should use our minds. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is what Daniel does after he has the vision. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. As Daniel saw the vision, he was trying to understand it. He was using his mind. Why is that point so important? Why is it significant that Daniel used his mind? 
Well, the answer comes from the timestamp Daniel gives us in verse 1. He has this vision in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the end of Belshazzar's reign. He was the king who saw the writing on the wall. He was weighed in the balances and found wanting. Daniel was the man who interpreted the writing on the wall. Belshazzar had relegated Daniel to the dustbin of his kingdom. He wasn't welcome in the royal court. His advice wasn't sought. His wisdom wasn't listened to. But Daniel was called to interpret the writing, and he spoke with extraordinary boldness and courage. Where did the courage come from? Well, it came from the fact that God had already given him this vision, chapter 8, telling him what would happen in the future. Remember, the second half of the book of Daniel doesn't follow on historically or chronologically from the first. Through the vision he receives in chapter 8, Daniel is able to show courage in chapter 5. Through the vision of chapter 8, Daniel recognizes with his mind that God is in sovereign control of history. Therefore, he can speak directly, bluntly, plainly, and honestly to a king who had totally ignored him. God is giving Daniel a glimpse behind the curtain that separates history from eternity. We need to use our eyes and use our minds. We're looking behind the curtain that separates the human from the divine, behind the curtain that separates the purposes of man and the purposes of God. We need to use our eyes, use our minds. And what we'll find when we do that is that the second half of Daniel is easier to read than we might think. Let's look at chapter 8 with those tips in mind. What lessons can we extract from this chapter? We could get lost in the detail of it. But what are the broad lessons that we see? Here's the first. God's people live in the midst of a chaotic world. God's people, we, you and I, the church, we live in the midst of a chaotic world. Daniel 7 provided us with a panoramic view of God's purposes. They point us very clearly to Jesus and to what he has done. A good way to think of chapter 7 is to think of taking a pano photo on your iPhone. If you don't have an iPhone or if you don't know what an iPhone is, you can take a photo of, say, a coastline or a mountain range by starting at one end and just moving your phone along. It gives you this wide-angle view, this wide-angle photo. On an iPhone, you can also take a straightforward photo, a normal photo, and you can also take a square. Uh, both of those are closer. The lens is, is narrowed. D d if Daniel 7 is the pano, Daniel 8 is the square. It's a narrowed view and it's a view of the immediate future of God's people. What Daniel sees and records came true a few hundred years after his time. What Daniel sees is the next great crisis that is about to arise, the coming of the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember, it's the third year of Belshazzar's reign. His reign ends with the Medo-Persians killing him. But the ram in verse 3 is later revealed to be Cyrus, the king of Medo-Persia, in verse 20. The male goat of verse 5, who comes across the face of the whole earth, is the king of Greece. History identifies this as Alexander the Great. He destroyed everything under his feet with his powerful army. So Daniel sees the Medo-Persians coming, and then he sees the Greeks coming. Alexander rose to power following a great conflict with the Persians. He went to battle with 35,000 soldiers. He went up against 100,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 horsemen, and he won. And he only lost about 100 men. 
His army destroyed a, a fifth, about a fifth of the great Persian army. He swept everything before him. And this is the terrifying vision that Daniel is given. But through the vision, God is telling him, even such a mighty figure like Alexander will be cut off. In giving Daniel a glimpse of the future, however difficult it is to understand, God was comforting Daniel. It showed Daniel that God knew the path that history would take. Through the vision, God was saying, even in such times as these, warfare, chaos, and fear, I have not let slip the reins of history. I know the end from the beginning. I am in control despite appearances. Do you know, we acknowledge this and say this very quickly and very easily. It sort of just rolls off our tongues. God is sovereign. God is in control. But we're slow to learn it. We're slow to take it to heart and apply it to our world, to our country, to our church family, to our own circumstances. Through Daniel 8, God is saying, my people should never make the mistake of trusting the appearances of history. We might think that we know what is happening, but we should never make the mistake of trusting the appearances of what's happening. My sovereign hand always rests upon it, even if it's apparent chaos. God's people, the church, live in the midst of a chaotic world. That's the first broad lesson. The second is closely related. God's people live in the face of the powers of evil. One of the dominant pictures we have in Daniel 8 is a male goat rising up and four horns coming out of it. Alexander the Great is the male goat and he died young. He died at the age of 32 or there thereabouts. And as far as I know, historians don't really know how he died. But after he died, his kingdom was divided and different rulers took over. You'll see that explained in verses 22 and 23. It says, as for the horn that was broken, Alexander's the horn, in place of which four others arose. So Alexander dies, four people take over from him. Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So Alexander was great, but the four people who come after him are not as great. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. So from the four horns, this one little horn rises. Why does the vision take us to focus on the little horn? He isn't as significant as Alexander the Great. So, so why bother mentioning him? Well, the key comes as we look at what he does in verses 9 to 11, what the little horn does in verses 9 to 11. Out of one of them came a little horn, so out of the four comes one. So that could be a son or a, a, a nephew of one of the four kings. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now, I don't want to lose you. It all seems a bit distant, but the key phrase in those verses is towards the glorious land. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So Alexander the Great dies, four kings arise from him, and from the four kings comes this little horn. What the, towards the glorious land is a reference to is the land that God had given his people. 
the glorious land, the, the, the land which, from which milk and honey flows. The focus of the little horn's destructive powers is the people of God. Now, this prophecy was fulfilled by a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, you're maybe totally gone at this point, but stick with me. Don't want this sermon to be a history lesson, but for you to understand this passage, you need to know what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He entered Jerusalem a few hundred years after Daniel had this vision, and he committed sacrilege. He offered a pig as a sacrifice in the temple. Pigs were considered unclean by the Jews, of course, but he also put what historians believe to be a monument of a meteorite in the place of God's honor. He referred to himself as Theos, or God, and he also slaughtered 40 to 50,000 of God's people and sacked the city. Antiochus Epiphanes was hell-bent on the destruction of God's people. He is one of the Bible's earliest manifestations of the Antichrist. Do you remember what the Apostle John writes in 1 John? He says in 1 John 2, 18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Antiochus Epiphanes was an Antichrist And Daniel saw something of what he would do to God's people. Don't want this to seem like a tangent, but because our point is that God's people live in the face of the powers of evil, it'll be helpful for us to consider the Bible's description of the spirit of the Antichrist. Here is how the spirit of Antichrist was manifest in Antiochus Epiphanes and is still manifested today. The spirit of Antichrist is a spirit of self-exaltation. It's seen when someone is focused on the destruction of others, namely God's people. It's seen when someone is cunning and deceitful. It's seen when someone regards truth as secondary to success. It's seen when someone is opposed to and seeks to destroy the worship and witness of God's people on earth. And it's seen when someone seeks to put themselves in the place of God and calls others to worship them. The spirit of Antichrist is hard-nosed, determined, and bitter. Is it any wonder that Daniel couldn't bear the significance of this vision? It's, it's so dark. He doesn't understand all the historical details, but he saw the darkness and the awfulness of evil powers. It's as though in showing him the vision, God was saying, look at the spirit of Antichrist from my perspective Look at how bad it is from my perspective. From a human perspective, we should tremble before the dark reality of evil. We don't do that enough because we live in the same world as the Apostle John. The final Antichrist is coming, but Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, is is set loose already. The spirit of Antichrist manifests itself in a hundred thousand different ways. God is saying to Daniel, you need to be aware of the dark reality of evil if you're ever going to stand and do spiritual warfare against these powers. As we face a world in which the end may or may not be near, it's important for us to remember the spiritual dimension of our life in this world, the spiritual dimension of our warfare. When we don't take this into account, we're unprepared for the intensity of our conflict. We should always remember there is a battle raging for our souls in the heavenly realms. Sometimes we're isolated from the struggle by our comfortable circumstances, 
if we have a nice house, a nice family, a good job, etc., etc., we're unlikely to cry out, how long, O Lord? We'd actually be quite happy for God to wait a while. When life is good, we forget to pray. We so easily forget that we're wrestling with the powers of darkness. In our attempts to share the gospel, defeat sin in our own hearts, build godly marriages and families, we're so easily beaten by the forces lined up against us. Unless the Lord intervenes on our side, we can never stand up against the gathering darkness. For that reason, we should be constantly fighting on our knees, committing our struggles to God. It's good to ask the question, why was it that Daniel was a man of prayer? We sang that little chorus, Daniel was a man of prayer, daily he prayed three times. Why was Daniel a man of prayer? It's because he saw the darkness in this chapter and he realized that he could rely on no one else apart from the Lord. God's people live in the midst of a chaotic world. God's people live in the face of the powers of evil. And our third and final lesson from this chapter is that God's people live in the knowledge of God's sovereign judgment. A little bit wordy. God's people live in the knowledge of God's sovereign judgment. More than anything else, having received this vision, Daniel should have been assured of God's sovereign judgment and control over all things. There are lots of indications of God's sure and certain judgment in this chapter. If you look at verse 14, years before the events that Daniel sees take place, Daniel hears that the dates are fixed. The length of time has been designated. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt over the interpretation of the 2,300 evenings and mornings. It's probably a period of three and a half years. What Daniel is saying is a period of time when there will be no sacrifice in the temple until it's restored. But God knew the time. The dates were fixed. Then look at verse 19. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. The appointed time of the end is not a reference to the very end of time. It's a reference to the end of these ravages, to the end of Antiochus Epiphanes, to the end of the pain and sorrow that God's people will face. It's only 2,300 evenings and mornings. It's not going to go on forever. The powers of darkness are not eternal. God will eventually say, enough is enough. Then also look at verse 24. Here Daniel records what he sees about the little horn. But what does he write? His power shall be great, but not by his own power. The powers of darkness aren't able to lift themselves up without the mysterious permission of the Lord himself. The powers of darkness can do whatever they want, but not by their own power. And look at how Antiochus Epiphany's end comes. The end of verse 25. He shall be broken, but by no human hand. It might not look like it, but God has his ways of bringing down men, either in amazing grace or in the most awful judgment. It's as an old Christian chorus goes, Kingdoms may rise and fall, and nations refuse to heed God's call, but the word of the Lord endures forevermore. That's the message Daniel was receiving. God's people live in the midst of a chaotic world. God's people live in the face of the powers of evil. And God's people live in the knowledge 
of God's sovereign judgment. What was his response to this vision? What was Daniel's response to this vision? What should ours be? Well, as you see in verse 17, Daniel is awestruck before God. He was terrified. And in verse 27, the final verse of the chapter, we're told that he was exhausted and lay in bed for several days. Now, (laughs) you might need to lie down after this sermon because you're exhausted trying to understand all the history and all the pictures and all the stuff we've talked about. It's not quite what happens to Daniel. He's exhausted because God has spoken to him in a powerful and awesome way. Imagine going to church and the Lord's word coming in such power that it meant that you couldn't go to work tomorrow. We, we, we don't even expect that to happen. Never mind experiencing something like it. But God gives Daniel a glimpse behind the curtain that separates history from eternity, behind the curtain that separates the human from the divine, behind the curtain that separates the purposes of man and the purposes of God. And we have seen something of what Daniel saw, a very limited version What should our response be? Do you notice what Daniel does in verse 27? It seems like a strange ending. We're told, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. What should you do as you seek to live for Jesus in the midst of a chaotic world? Go about your normal business. What should you do as you battle the powers of evil Love God, read his word, devote yourself to him in prayer, get involved in your church, and go about your normal business. What should you do as you wait for God's final judgment to come? Rest in the fact that he is in control and go about your normal business. There's a story told about the hymn writer Charles Wesley. He was going from town to town in England and was stopped by someone who asked him this question. They said, Mr. Wesley, if you knew that Jesus Christ was going to return tomorrow, what would you do tomorrow? Wesley went into the saddlebag of his horse and pulled out his diary and opened it up. He read out what he had planned for the following day and what he had planned to do for the morning of the next day. And then he said this. He said, that, dear sir, is what I would do. If you knew that Jesus Christ was going to return tomorrow, What would you do? He read his diary and said, that dear sir is what I would do. In other words, business as usual. It's good to remind ourselves that God has set us where we are. He has appointed our space and place and it is to that space and place that each of us go. In light of the drama of Daniel 8, we go about our normal business. We return to serving the God in whom we trust the one to whom we look, the one who has saved us and rescued us through his son, his son who has lived in the midst of the chaos of this world, his son who has taken on the powers of evil and won, his son who endured the father's sovereign judgment so that in him we might be forgiven. In light of Daniel 8, we live for Jesus and we go about our normal business. A word for you, if you're not a Christian. These visions in Daniel are supposed to create an impression of power. In the case of Daniel 8, it's dark power that we're supposed to see. But if you aren't trusting the Lord, you need to realize that anyone who takes him on ultimately fails. They ultimately lose. Those who think they know better or think they are stronger and who reject him and reject him and reject him 
are eventually broken. As we've peeked behind the curtain of world history, surely you're brought to see that there is no one else worth relying on, worth trusting in, worth following. Our God is powerful and he is reigning. So will you turn to our great God and Savior this evening? Let's pray together. Lord, we know that your word is not altogether clear in some places as it is in others. But we pray tonight that you would use our our weak attempts to understand this chapter for your glory. We pray that we would leave here tonight understanding and reassured of your sovereignty, knowing that you're the God who is in control of all things, that despite appearances, that despite the fact our world is in chaos, despite the the attempts of the powers of darkness to, to stamp out the people of God, you're the one who is in control. And we thank you that one day you will judge this world in righteousness. We thank you that one day Jesus will return and right every wrong and wipe away every tear. Father, until that day, we pray as your people that you would help us to go about our normal business, living for you and honoring you. And we pray that you would also speak to those who haven't yet trusted the Savior. Help them to see who you are tonight. Help them to realize that resisting and rejecting you is one of the most foolish and futile things anyone can ever do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and living and active. Help us as we continue to consider these things in our heart. And we pray that you'd part us with with your blessing tonight. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.